Welcome to the Habits and Hustle podcast, a podcast that uncovers the rituals, unspoken habits, and mindsets of extraordinary people. A podcast powered by Habit Nest. Now here's your host, Jennifer Cohen. It's very nice to have you on Habits and Hustle. I've actually been very excited to speak to you. This is uh, a real treat to have you on here. Um, I, so for okay, so I, I didn't even properly introduce you. Uh, we have Opal Tamati. She's one of the founders of Black Lives Matter. But beyond that, you're just extremely accomplished and very impressive. I mean, that's just you know, in, in like reading your bio and checking out everything about you, it's unbelievable. You were named one of Times. 100 most influential women of the century, one of Forbes 50 most influential people in the world, a glamour award for justice seekers. I mean, the list, you were also awarded a Sydney Peace Prize and an honorary PhD. And that's just the beginning. I mean, I mean, there's like, I literally have notes and notes and notes based on like your successes. So it really is a pleasure to meet, to kind of virtually meet you and have you here. So thank you for being here. Of course. Thanks so much for having me. This is my pleasure as well. And definitely excited to connect with you and your community. Oh, thank you. Uh, well, let's start from the beginning because really I was, I, I was really anxious to speak to you because, um, well, first of all, I want to start with the basics. I think what where what's the origin of Black Lives Matter? Because I don't think myself included, I don't want to sound like an ignoramus, uh, uh, but I think it's really important to like start from the beginning. This is this shouldn't be a master class in it because a lot of people who I think have misinformation and don't really understand. So let's start with the the basics of the origin of how everything began with with Black Lives Matter. Yeah. So yeah, once again, thanks for having me. Um, I love to share about how we originated because I don't think as many people really know the origins and they don't know that three black women were the the co-founders, the co-founders of, of Black Lives Matter. And we started Black Lives Matter um, back in 2013 in the wake of the acquittal of George Zimmerman for the murder mm. of Trayvon Martin, which... I mean, I think if, if, if folks recall, like it really devastated so many, um, both in the U.S. but around the world. I think the story mm-hmm. really traveled far and wide, knowing that a 17-year-old boy was stalked and killed and um, his murderer found not guilty. It traumatized our community. I know that I was looking out um, after hearing that news. I had actually just watched this film called Fruitvale Station, which is the story of Oscar Grant, which was a you know a young man killed in Oakland, California. And I just watched that film, then just got the news on my phone about the acquittal of George Zimmerman, and my heart broke. Um, it broke yeah. in part because I saw that everybody in the world was you know getting this news and this information, but also because I was thinking about my 14-year-old brother at the time, and he is the apple of my eye, and I would do anything for him. And I just couldn't imagine that him and my other young cousins and, and different people that I love, my godkids, would hear this story and think that this was okay. And like the, mm-hmm. the adults wouldn't do anything, right? And so I quickly went to the internet and, and connected with different folks who began to share their thoughts and ideas about you know, what we can do in situations like this. And I was particularly compelled by Alicia Garza her Facebook post, which essentially said, um, you know, black people, I love us. 
our lives matter. And I was moved by that message. And I was moved in particular because Patrice Colors put a hashtag underneath this in Facebook, you know, back in 2013. And it hit me um, in large part because I was already doing some form of community organizing. I was already part of advocacy campaigns and doing human rights work in New York and across the country. But it felt like they captured something so succinctly and that we could not only have a message, but we can invite more people to join in um, our advocacy, join in the movement. And it felt to me like this was an important opportunity for us to build out um, a platform that reminded people of the amazing, courageous work of those like those in, in the civil rights movement. So I was thinking about, you know, a John Lewis, a Martin Luther King, right. um, Ella Baker, many other civil rights leaders in the past. And I wanted to remind people that we didn't have to have this be the end of the story. You know, George Zimmerman being acquitted of this murder didn't have to be it. We could continue to write a new story. We can challenge what was being known as the status quo. And although we had at the time, a you know, a black president, for us, it was just a clear reminder that the issues aren't just, you know, one off here and there, but there are real structural challenges that we're faced with and that are impacting black communities. And so we had to encourage others to join, you know, with us, join alongside us um, and advocate. So that was, you know, that was the beginning. About a year after that, uh, Mike Brown was killed in Ferguson, Missouri, and that too devastated the country. You know, 17-year-old boy um, hadn't done anything wrong, unarmed, was killed by a police officer, you know, and it devastated the community of Ferguson. And they had these incredible uprisings that happened there. And we were watching on social media, right? We're watching and taking in the news on social media. And we saw the ways in which the protesters were actually treated with a lot of disdain. There were um, there was a militarized police force that in essence caused the world to wake up to what was happening in Ferguson as well. And so we saw that and within, you know, two weeks organized the Black Lives Matter Freedom Ride you know, to Ferguson, where 500, you know, black people came um, to, to Ferguson. And that was also equally incredible. And I think is really important to note, because a lot of times folks would look to and refer to Black Lives Matter as though it was just an online movement, or it was just about this hashtag. But what was clear from the Black Lives Matter Freedom Ride and the leadership of, of Patrice Cullors and Darnell Moore, who helped to coordinate um the ride, what was clear to us was that we had to embody our values, that we had to show up and let people know that, no, 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 this is not just a rhetorical <laughs> pl- you know, right. campaign. This is about showing up for real people who are in harm's way, that are going through crisis and letting them know they are not alone. Um, and by doing so, that also encouraged those people who showed up there to say, actually, this is happening in our own home cities, in our home states. And so we want to have our own chapters. We want to we want to engage at the local level in our own campaigns around issues of racism or economic injustice or education disparities and beyond. And so that's what we've seen um, happen over the years. But I feel like those two stories kind of capture the, the beginnings of what we know as, right. as Black Lives Matter. And of course, it's evolved since uh, those seven years to what we even see today. I remember the George, I remember watching the news when that 
verdict was read and it was it was appalling and shocking i totally remember that and then and i could not believe that that was actually happening so that good on you i guess to actually do something about it uh and then i was under the impression that after you saw the hashtag of black lives matter you you took the ball and ran with it basically yeah so once so that was the thing when i saw the hashtag I, it hit me. It just hit me so clearly that these words not only um, were powerful in terms of a, like a demand on the world, but it was also deeply affirming, right? Just like its own chant. And I called Alicia and said, Hey, you know, I see this post here. I'm not exactly sure what's going on or what you're planning on doing, but I believe we really need to develop um, a real platform that allows more people to engage. You know, do you mind if I buy blacklivesmatter.com? And do you mind if I build out our social media so that we can encourage more people to use this hashtag? And so that it's not, um, it's not just a great idea, but that we can actually really mobilize our communities, um, utilizing the hashtag to coordinate our voices, but also for us to amplify our analysis of the situation. Because we know that it's not just about police brutality, but we have issues in the healthcare system or the education system in the workplace and beyond. And it's important for us to have that analysis be you know, further developed and um, understood by a wider spread of our, com- our, our of our society so that we can actually transform our communities and our society as a whole. So, so, so what did you do? Did you start, what did you do? So you took the ball, you took, you started to like, how did you, because now it's obviously a massive platform bigger than it was, of course. And we'll get into that, but what was the steps? Cause obviously you, you, you're obviously a go-getter and you're able to like do this. So it's very, it's very much a leadership thing that you're doing. What was your first thing? What did you do? Yeah. So here's the thing. I was already the executive director of another organization called the Black Alliance for Just Immigration, working on immigrant rights issues across the country with black communities. And I was already busy. (laughs) You know, I already had my hands full with that responsibility, but I knew something more needed to be done. And so I, Right after I called Alicia, I went to, you know, buy the domain. I got blacklivesmatter.com. I also went to Tumblr because I figured that would be like the, the easier way for me to both build out the website and have a little bit of a, you know, a template going but also that it was so, it's shareable. So much of what what was so important about using these tools has been, we need this to share. We need it to be circulating into the world so that folks can engage with the information that they're getting, engage with the stories um, and know how to connect and do something about what's happening in the world. And so I specifically went to Tumblr. I I chose a yellow and black, you know, design because yellow is my favorite color, you know, black because it's obvious, but also the, 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 the color scheme just, I thought was so beautiful. Um, and so I went there, built that. I then called a bunch of organizers that we know and sent a, both called and sent a mass email and invited them to check out blacklivesmatter.com. I let them know what we're, you know, what we're doing. And I said, Hey, you're also doing great great work in the community. Um, Can you tell us more about your organization? And would you be willing to wear a a blog post and telling us how you are working to make Black Lives Matter? So that was like, you know, that was the first prompt. And so we had maybe about 15, 20 different organizations and their leaders write 
blog posts that were that we could share. And then we also had a list of dozens of organizations across the country where people can get involved at the local level. So that was the, you know, that was the beginning. And between both the creation of you know, our website and then going on and, and starting our Facebook and our Twitter and starting to populate and use the hashtag, then it began to go a bit more viral in that first, you know, that first year. We got a little bit of press. People were taking the signs out to rallies in different parts of the country. I was in New York. My fellow colleagues were in California. Um, but we also saw that in, in Atlanta, people were holding these signs at rallies. And so the message began to bubble up and to build and to be embodied and to really be grounded in real community organizations. And I think what was so important for me was that we needed to also use this as a place for people to understand that it doesn't have their activism doesn't have to look the same, right, as everybody else's. Or, or um, if you see me doing something, it doesn't necessarily have to be the same way that you get involved. But hey, here is a whole menu of options of organizations that you can get involved with, um, of messages that you can share, of information through the blog post and the news post that we were doing on our social media. Um, and it was in essence for us to be able to say we need you, right? All hands on deck. And we're going to make it as easy as possible for you to engage and, and get involved. So you took the ball and ran with it on the social media side and the online side. What did your other partners focus on? Did you guys kind of divvy up your responsibilities or how did it, how did it grow? Yeah. So it was rather, it was very organic. Um, everything was really, really organic, especially in the early days. And so I went and, you know, led on the social media side. About a year later, uh, Patrice said, hey, we need to do this freedom ride along with Darnell Moore. And that was when we were able to physically all of us meet up along with, you know, 500 amazing people from across the country and even Canada. And we drove, you know, Car- carpooled, <laughs> rented buses, um, got in airplanes. Wait, you all- didn't know them? You didn't know these girls at all? So I knew Alicia and I actually didn't know Patrice at the time. So we, Alicia was our mutual connection and we hadn't even met, like Patrice and I hadn't even met in person at that point. Oh, I, wow. I met Alicia at a leadership training for black organizers, so community organizers across, and it's basically a program around our leadership oh and my gosh. And, and all of that. And I actually didn't know Patrice, who was living in LA at the time, but through social media, we got connected as a result of Black Lives Matter. So really powerful, really incredible, true connections <laughs> as a result of uh, both the movement, our care and concern for for Black people and the health of Black lives, and you know the use of these really cool digital tools. Well, I find it also interesting that I feel. I mean, you tell me because this is obviously you know way more than I would. I feel like over the last because of the pandemic, maybe people are much more isolated and they are have less distractions on the outside. That I think when um, the George Floyd uh, murder happened, it opened up a lot of people's eyes to things that maybe they weren't necessarily even paying attention to. Did, did, did it, do you feel that black lives explode in the last little while? Like how much more recognition have you had, do you have now than you did back then? I mean, in the beginning we had just pockets, I think of recognition and it went viral for a little bit, then it, then it died down. And then sadly when Mike Brown was killed, 
it went global. And that's how the movement began uh, to be known as Black Lives Matter. So we have not only Black Lives Matter as like our, you know, our platform, our social media and all of that, but then we had the chapters um, across the country. But because of the way that our chapters were created um, in Ferguson, Missouri, or coming out of Ferguson, Missouri, on that Black Lives Matter freedom ride, that also meant that the press and the message that they were getting was this kind of right. simple message and, and hearing about what, you know, this thing called Black Lives Matter. And so our our network became synonymous with the movement in terms of the name and, the, and what was it was called. And because of the ways in which hashtags circulate. So it makes a lot of sense, especially because of the, um, the rate in which unarmed Black people, you know, children, women, men, people of different ages have been killed. It's, it's a lot. And so it does constitute um, the, it, it necessitates a movement to to stop that, to call attention to it, to make new plans and solutions to um, address the anti-black racism in our society, and so yeah, we all had our you know our different roles and to play to a certain degree, um, but the real thing is that we have thousands and thousands of people who've been engaging in the work of Black Lives Matter that even predates this particular moment, right. um, then. Sadly, with us being in the pandemic and seeing the ways in which even how COVID-19 has acutely impacted communities of color and, and really acutely Black communities, we see that the issues of racism that Black Lives Matter has been talking about is is uh, is pervasive, right? It's, it's not yeah. just about the police brutality, but then we did see that that issue came up once again within this pandemic context and people sitting, you know, at home, people contemplating, you know, their works, uh, their work, uh, their children's schools, and and so much of their day to day, they were sitting and hit with this news, with this video. The you know, the footage was, oh. I mean, heart wrenching, barbaric. I I just I've never seen anything in my life like that, and I think for all of us to have that on our phones, on our devices, on our computers, on the, you know, the news, it just, I think, woke everyone up. Um, Not only in the U.S., we've seen, you know, we saw rallies and protests from Australia to South Korea to Amsterdam and Paris, you know, we've seen it around the world um, where people said, we, we watch this too, and this is not okay. And enough, you know, enough is enough. We know that Black Lives Matter has been trying to draw attention to this. You know, this is not an issue that only that group or only Black people are going to solve, right? Right. But this is an issue that is for uh, incumbent on all of us to, to address as a society. And so I think this period, something clicked, <laughs> you know, something right. we've been calling for for a long time, but it's fine. Right. It clicked for the, the majority of people. Now, do you think it's because the video was just so brutal or has there been other videos that bec- people just haven't paid attention to because they're distracted with going out to clubs, going to work, going with their kids places because people are stuck at home watching the news constantly. That's the, and they were more, more or less enlightened by what was happening more. Right. So if this, if that same video happened when we didn't have a pandemic and COVID-19, do you think it would have had the same impact on the world in a way? Yeah. 
Honestly, I feel like the the combination of both the pandemic mm-hmm. coupled with this with this horrible footage really unlocked something that could not have been unlocked otherwise. Yeah. I think the pandemic really sensitized our society to what is truly going on, and then folks didn't really have the excuses, right? So, you right. know, both the, the the scales of apathy, I think, have been removed, but also folks. You know, they aren't going to work in the same ways. They're not, you know, responsible for certain other kinds of tasks. And they're also in a reflective state around what is this world really going to look like? Are, am I going to have to be worried about my neighbor and whether or not they're going to pass away and whether or not they have the health care to, <laughs> to, to, right. to cover? You know, um, people are concerned about the the rates of homelessness and, and high unemployment. And I think people were just really contemplating just how are things functioning for real, you know, yeah. and and where do they see things going and where do they want things to go for the society? Um, and I think people finally realize that they have to take ownership and that they have power. There is a sense of agency that we have. And I think the sense of agency was unlocked when we saw people come together and support their neighbors and make sure people who didn't have access to, you know, maybe go into the grocery store, other people helped to go to the grocery store for them. We saw mutual aid groups form across the country where people are pooling their money to help, you know, a single mom and her kids, or people are pooling their money because they know that, you know, queer artists might not be getting the same types of jobs because the economy has, has now retracted. And so I think people were beginning to flex this muscle of care um, and real compassion mm-hmm. and, and just understanding that our connections are there whether we like it or not, but the quality of our connections, whether we attend <laughs> them, right? Whether we actually, you know, just really care for our neighbor or the person in our in our community, it actually matters, right? It, and in, yeah. in the case of a pandemic, we get to see um, how health is interlinked. <laughs> you know, your health is actually connected to my health is connected to... Right, it is. It ends up you know, unfolding in a way where we realize we're, we're connected, whether we like it or not, we're in this thing together, whether we like it or not. And so yeah. we have to attend to, to what is. And I think part of what happened was between being sensitized with the pandemic to what is going on and to our own agency, our own sense of power, especially our sense of power when our government wasn't responding in the ways that a lot of us thought they should do and we're seeing you know different countries around the world where we're like oh they're back to normal or quote unquote or a new normal and we're we're really reflecting on you know is this is this thing working how is it working and then we see once again this this murder of of george floyd in addition to a number of other things that kind of preceded that moment that made people realize like even now even in this midst of this crisis, things like this are going on. And I think people just felt a sense of real shame around this as well, right? That this could be going on for so long and I it didn't really rise up. I didn't go to the rallies before. I didn't, you know, speak up or call my elected official. I didn't, you know, I didn't really engage. And so now's the time. You know, this is like enough is enough. This isn't going away by itself. <laughs> you right. Know? I have no. to do something about it. I have to sh- I have to show up and and act. So I think it shifted things for a lot of people. Well, and also what's interesting, you just said that people were, or the police were doing a lot of those things before people, I mean, it, this is not the first time with having the knee in the neck or whatever. Um, 
and it's just the first time I think maybe people like took like actually noticed or yeah. saw it for their with their own eyes. Um, so then, what about all the protesting and and uh, the police? Like, what's your view on all this? The de- like, do you believe in debunking the police and the protests? Like, that they were getting violent. Like, what do you think of all of that stuff? Why? Like, what, what's what's your take on it? I'm so heartened by the uprisings that we've seen across the country and around the world. I think it's incredible to witness and to be alive for these times where people um, have found the courage within themselves to say, I'm going to, I'm going to speak up. I'm going to be found on the right side of history and I'm going to join something that is meaningful and necessary right now. Um, That's been extremely powerful. And I think that there have been some amazing and courageous calls within those protests and within the rallies and the different organizations who are essentially saying we need to reevaluate what safety looks like for our people and for our communities. Is safety, um, are police a requisite for safety? Or are there other things that we should be considering that make a society or a neighborhood or a community truly safe? Like what? That's what I'm curious about. Yeah, so what I think is, what I thought has been amazing has been, people have been saying, hey, we actually need really good jobs programs in our community so that folks aren't actually engaging in other types of, quote, you know, mm. uh, off the records, uh, yeah. right? Um, because they would like to, but hey, we, they might not have access to employment um, for a number of reasons. And they might be discriminated against in the workplace. So there's, there's questions around, could these resources be used to create jobs, mm. jobs programs? There are others who are saying, Hey, sometimes when police are called, it's for an issue related to mental health. Why don't we have resources that are allocated for more social workers um, or other kinds of healthcare workers in those moments of crises where you can de-escalate a situation without the use of lethal force? Um, other folks are talking about, hey, we don't have the same types of resources for the education system that we have been calling for for so long. We know where those resources can come from. And it's actually really important and effective uh, for our communities to have a well-funded, well-resourced, you know, administrative staff, education mm-hmm. staff, the supplies that the students need and beyond. And then I think the, the last example that I've been seeing people share widely has just been, look at how militarized the police force mm-hmm. We don't need military in our communities. We actually could use those types of resources for the types of PPE that our doctors needed, that our healthcare workers needed, um, that the janitorial staff needed as they're you know cleaning the hospitals and 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 beyond. And so I think there's a real question about how, where are we allocating you know taxpayer dollars and mm-hmm. are they really serving the community best? And also you know when you have law enforcement that is um, licensed and authorized to use a lethal weapon, when you have a society that's riddled with bias and anti-Black racism as a bias, this is what happens, sadly. You know, we see this lethality, this brutality that is happening in our communities day in and day out. So no, George Floyd was not the first, Breonna Taylor was not the first, you know, these aren't the first, but we're seeing um, that these issues are still persistent, even in the midst of a pandemic. And people are fed up, <laughs> you know, they're, yeah. they're, you know, enough is enough. Let's restructure this thing. Let's make it safe for all of us and not for just some of us. And um, 
that's, I think, in essence, what we're seeing the, the movements call for. So it's not just education, but it's changing the structure of what's happening, right? The education is really kind of, you know, step one. And then the other part is the structure. You know, I also was going to say that. Oh, I I, I like to tell people like, yeah, awareness is good, but action is better. Right. So it's one for for the community and for society to be aware that there's police brutality or there's uh, issues with our educational system or healthcare system is one. Okay, great. You know that you have the data, you have the stories, but what are you going to do about it? And that's what comes into play. Is are, are these systems working? And if not, we've made that assessment that they're not. <laughs> I think it's clear. Right. So now let's do what we need to do to re, to fix them, um, or to actually I'll fix them. In some cases, it's not we don't need to fix, but we need to change them, right? And then like what? So I want to ask you about that. So hold on, I'm going to hold hold that thought because what I was going to say also just because we're on the police a little bit. Mm-hmm. How about how, what do you think of even like taking a step back and maybe the maybe when they when people are hiring they should do a better job maybe like have a better uh basically not basically have a better way of weeding out the people who would not be good fits for this maybe they should be taking more mental health checks of who these people are and the training process should be better than just cuz i think that tr- right now maybe it's not as as um as good or as elaborate as it should be. Right. There are a lot of people who've been calling for that. And I think there have been cases where, um, and places where there has been additional training or different types of training, but the data that's come out from that is that it doesn't really work. So it's not, yeah, it's not it because the, the, why is that then? Why is it? That's because of this. So, you know, us, UCLA did this whole series of, of studies on implicit bias. It's because so much of the implicit bias that is mm. happens in the, a matter of you know less than a second. The judgment call is made, and you're you have an entire society that's being fed these messages around the value of Black lives. So if you're getting media messages time and time again that it's devaluing you know blackness and black skin and sees it as a crime, there's there are so few trainings that are going to get you to that point where you're able to stop your. Uh, yeah, in the middle of it. And the, then the truth of the matter is also you have a, a lethal weapon, right? So you have a gun that is able to discharge in a, you know, in a fraction of a second. So what we've, what we've seen and what the data has begun to show us is know that training is, is not really the solution. And there, there might be, there is some, an element of weeding out the, the people who have chosen to come into the, this profession or because. Right. Um, of their desire to uh, play out their their racist views, and so there has been there have been studies even by the FBI found that there are um, a crew of, of white supremacists that have been going to into law enforcement on purpose for this game. So this is a, that is a real issue, and so I think yes, there can be work and there should be work done. Uh, to weed them out. However, what is also going on at the same time is the fact that there's no amount of training, um, mm-hmm. no amount of pouring more and more dollars into this profession where at the end of the day, they're, they were not designed um, to be a support or safety net or safety, you know, right. rule for communities of color and black people specifically. It just, it just wasn't designed that way. And so the, the real call is to say, Hey, 
these resources can actually be used to make the entire you know, community safe. But let's also look at, that means that there are other professions there, right? Yeah. There, are other, there are other systems, there are other institutions that can be well-resourced in order to have a more healthy and vibrant society overall. More from our guest, but first a few words from our sponsor. So do you want your team to develop habits that will help them thrive? You need Rise.com, the all-in-one online training system employees love. Rise makes online training easy to create, enjoyable to take, and simple to manage. With Rise, anyone can easily create guides, courses, and other training content. You can start from scratch or customize hundreds of pre-built lessons, helpful course templates, and gorgeous sample courses to build content even faster. Your learners will love RISE because RISE courses are beautiful, interactive, and engaging. Your managers will love RISE because RISE makes it fast and easy to create, distribute, and analyze online training. And your IT department will love RISE because it has everything your team needs to manage online training in one secure enterprise class system. See why you'll love Rise by starting a free 30-day trial at rise.com slash hustle. That's rise.com slash hustle. Day to day with with Black Lives Matter, what what do you do? You got all three of you, or now because now it's like a it's a movement, right? And I know that's like a and then you have these chapters. What is what does the day-to-day look like? And how are the chapters? I'm confused by the movement, the chapters. Everyone has their own chapter, but they're they're not they're affiliated with you, but they're not really. They're their own entity. Can you explain all this? Because it's I'm confused. I'm confused. <laughs> <laughs> Gladly. So what I what I would think is what might be helpful is yeah. there's a movement, right? A movement okay. bigger than any one person, any three people, any organization, right? A movement is comprised of millions, you know, thousands if not millions of people, leaders, organizations, and beyond. So that's that's going on. <laughs> whether we okay, like, right. I'm alive or not, whether I'm doing it or not, it's happening, right? So you started the movement. Three of you guys started the movement. And now, and then now what, you know, now these chapters, take it from here. Yes. Yes. Now, then we have, you know, the three of us as, as co-founders, but we are engaged in different organizations and, and it also, you know, we're public figures. And so we're supporting other groups and companies and, and organizations across the country and the world and, and, and providing advice and, you know, speaking and sharing. So there's, there's that, you know, there's that set of responsibilities. Uh, We sit on different boards and, and beyond, but then we have what we, we also co-founded was, the actual global network of Black Lives Matter, where we have chapters across the country who are dynamic and they're individual affiliates, right? So they're similar to a Planned Parenthood or an NAACP where the local expression is is, is different, right? So some chapters might be working um, with a family around a, an issue of police brutality, while others might be doing work around just healing and, and caring for the community, while others might be doing education work. So it, it it really varies. But then there are, at the local level, there are also a number of other organizations that are and have their own names, right? And right. 
there might be a chapter of the NAACP that's involved with the coalition that Black Lives Matter might be involved with, or there might be a Black Youth Project or the Dream Defenders or or different organizations. And so they're all part of this kind of larger movement. And so I understand the, the confusion or I understand, but I hope that that little bit kind of helps to, to clarify some of that. And then how about like, there's a lot of, I feel, um, myths about Black Lives Matter. There's like a lot of myths about Black Lives Matter, a lot of inaccuracies of what you guys um, are involved with. Can you clear some of the, can you t- name and talk about maybe three or four of these, or, or as many as you want, actually, the main myths and inaccuracies of what you guys stand for and what you guys are? Yeah, I mean, I think I'd want to know specifically what you might have heard, but I'll say this, and I appreciate you raising that because what we found is that not only are we the largest movement in history, but we're also the, we have had the most um, attacks in terms of disinformation of any entity in history as well. So we have kind of two (laughs) big, big awards, right? Or big And that's why I wanted to bring it up. You have the, you're the most significant social movement of modern history by far. And yet there are a lot of inaccuracies when you bring your name up, not you specifically, but the movement platform Black Lives Matter. It's it, it, it can you get a lot of different uh, people with lots of different opinions. Right. Right. So there's a lot. I mean, there's a lot of that. And so from folks, um, you know, Think, saying things that you know about us being uh, going out and causing violence, or to there's a there's just a number of I've heard it all. <laughs> but then what, there's also, what are the top? Also, I mean, these days, ooh, what's the, what are some of the top ones? Um, what I mean, there are so many that I kind of lump and just <laughs> you throw away. Well, well, I do because. The, the thing is, if you go to both, if it's our website, um, if it's to my social, the other co-founder social media and beyond, you know exactly what we stand for. And so the fact that we have to even dispute uh, various lies just feels, you know, like it's gaslighting, right? It feels yeah. like, you know, in so many ways, um, it feels really disingenuous. And I know that I've found that when people have even approached me and said things like, oh, well, isn't, isn't, wouldn't it be better if you said all lives matter instead of black lives matter and, and things like that. And I'm just like, you know, what's happening in the world. You see what's happening in, in the world. You see that there is a real urgent you know, crisis and need and it's pervasive and it needs to be addressed. Why would you, you know, say this thing or bring this other, um, why would you bring this to me in this way when you know what we're doing and you know, ultimately that yes, the aspiration is that all lives matter, but guess what? The reality is in this world right now, we're not seeing that all lives matter. We're actually seeing that black lives are being devalued systematically and are under attack. And so we are fighting to ensure that, that they matter and that they're protected and they're safe. And um, yeah. And I just find that so much ends up being said in a way that that feels like it's, you know, they're gaslighting us or they're not 
connected to the reality of the situation. They aren't really taking in the news and it's just regurgitating, um, you know, sound bites and, you know, different lies. And so I, my big thing is like folks have to know that there is a lot that's being said out there. Um, a lot of it is not true. And there is a willful effort to undermine us, to discredit us, to make us seem as though we are some kind of weird enemy with some ulterior motive. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll tell you one myth. Exactly. I mean, there's a lot of them, right? Like you said, it's, it's, first of all, it's funny when people, I, I tend to understand what you, where you're coming from, your organization that you store, the movement platform is called Black Lives Matter. So when people say to you, well, isn't it all lives? You're like, well, this, that's not what my organization is. My organization has very distinct, you know, that's what you're trying to, that well, is what you're trying to, you're, well, not to say you don't care, but that's not what your entire platform is right now, right? So it, it doesn't make, it, it, I can see why there's such an incongruent when they say that to you, right? Because you're like, that's not what I'm trying to do. Well, not even not what I'm trying to do. It is what I'm trying. It's exactly what I'm trying to do. But it's if we do this, we will get there, right? Right. Work to make ensure that Black Lives Matter. You will then have a world where all lives matter. Because the status quo is that Black lives don't matter in this society, right? That's that's that is the norm. We see it. I mean, CNN just released a report two days ago saying that uh, a, a new study that came out show that black babies, newborns, when they're born, they're three times more likely to die if they're being delivered by a white, a white doctor versus a doctor of color. Right. So the, these, this is real information, real data there. These things are happening and they are at play. So we have a society where, oh, wow, you know, black lives don't matter. You know, we see this also with mass incarceration and the ways in which, you know, Black people are so easily locked up. We're, we're 13% of the population, yet 40% of the people in prison. It, it doesn't quite add up on a natural, but it does add up if you live in a society that values, um, doesn't value Black lives, right? Right. And wow. I- so it, it's it's deep. It's pervasive. Um but it, but it's real, and so what we are saying is let's let's deal with the real facts, the real data, the real stories, and what we continue to see time and time again is the devaluation of Black lives. And so we've you know we've created a movement that said let's affirm, let's affirm Black lives, let's ensure that we are um, respecting, protecting, and building a world where everybody has the opportunity to thrive, and not just over other folks. And what's interesting is because of the popularity and the, it's become more mainstream of late, it's helped show, bring awareness to all sorts of groups, not just actually Black Lives Matter. Black Lives Matter, I feel, has like helped kind of like lead the way for all these other things that are kind of happening now. It's like a ripple effect. Absolutely. You know? There's a total ripple effect. I think uh, we wouldn't have seen, I mean, even the change of the, I hated this term, the, the Washington. I was going to say Washington Redskins. I was, I was going to bring it up. Right. We wouldn't have seen that. I mean, I think that there are other movements from the immigrant rights movement um, to the Me Too movement and beyond where we've seen um, such so much advancement um, as a result of the Black Lives Matter movement. So 
They are interconnected. They're not one, you know, there's not one group that has a monopoly on any, but there's definitely um, a ripple effect where we are all finding our voices and we're all standing up for justice in their respective spaces. What can people do? You were talking about this. Awareness is a little is 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 kind of half the battle, but the other one, other part is like action, right? What can people do to uh, show support and be involved without just necessarily just going and protesting? What's another? What are other ways people can help? Yeah, I think the important ways for people to help in this moment are by joining uh, an organization, be it local or or even national getting involved because that is a space where people can finally, you know, walk the talk. They can their actual values. They can learn more about the issues. They can get in a little bit deeper because the thing is we can't just have one, you know, select group of people that are going to be doing the advocacy and, and kind of helping to reframe or restructure our society. We need more of us to be involved. We need more of us to be aware and, and knowledgeable. So I encourage people to join organizations. I also encourage people to join organizations because organizations allow you to have um, a community that is going to continue to educate you, right? There's mm-hmm. there's always more to learn. There's always more to learn. They'll both keep you accountable to your values, will help you learn more, but also it's a sustainable way to engage. Mm-hmm. Have so much on our plate. Um, I think we're all facing burnout, even in the middle of the pandemic. I know folks are are feeling the strain of of work, of life, Absolutely. managing all sorts of things. But being a part of an organization allows you to share the responsibilities. So I think that is also incredibly key. Orgs also can connect you with opportunities for you know phone banking, for example. So calling if it's an elected official, um, they can let you know when it's if it's time to vote or how and you know what you should know when you're going into the polls. Um, being connected to a group, I think, is probably the, the most important thing folks can do right now, a campaign or an organization. That is key. I think beyond that, folks should you know donate. They should give. If they see that there is a group out there that could use their support, um, they should be you know donating to local organizations. Um, largely, I, I would encourage folks to donate to, to Black-led organizations in their community, also to groups that are doing really strong work with allies. There's a lot that has to be done. Um, and it's in partnership, it's in coalition, it's with, you know, different types of people coming together. And we need those groups to also have the, you know, the resources, the support um, in order to transform this world. So have you always been like this? Like just such a, like, are you a natural born? Were you just always this a natural born leader, this, you know, this, you out call for good like did when you were younger yeah. but before this and before you were like what was it the uh black alliance for just immigration you were the ceo of that before you're not involved are you still involved with them as well or no 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 i've i've okay passed, i've passed the baton after you passed years, i passed the baton. <laughs> my gosh I'm, but i'm um, you know i still talk with the director regularly and you know of course support but Absolutely. Day, I think that's also a key. But yeah, you know, I, I, as 
as far back as I can really remember, I'm, I'm even thinking about high school where I was involved with the diversity and equality club as a young person, which is <laughs> my, my, my early days of learning a little bit more about um, what was going on in the world and what I can do and, you know, using my voice and organizing, you know, cultural showcases on my high school campus and, and like that. So, I, you know, I started then and then I went off to college at the University of Arizona in Tucson, which is near the U.S.-Mexico border region. And so there I also learned a lot more, not only I knew a lot about immigration because of my own family's experience being Nigerian-American, but also I learned a lot, you know, being in the border region, you know, witnessing some Mm. You know, some tragic things in terms of, you know, people with blisters on their feet from crossing the desert, dehydration, people dying, just a you know, number of, of, of issues, but also Arizona being kind of ground zero for a lot of the the policy changes around um, immigration. And so that was th- those were my stomping grounds, my, my early days learning in that space. And um, yeah, I, I guess I was, <laughs> you know, so attracted um, to this work, you know, quite early when I realized that, okay, I'm reading stuff in the textbooks that say, you know, Martin Luther King did this or Rosa Parks did that. And I kind of thought things were resolved or should be resolved by now. And only to have these rude awakenings, not only in my own family's life, but in some of the lives of my closest friends. And, you know, from an early age became really attuned to the fact that, you know, the world isn't perfect. (laughs) No, it's not. Far from it. And I have all these beautiful people in my life that I love and care about and and myself included. And I want us to be treated with the respect, you know, and love that we deserve and the kind of reverence and care that I have for my, my peers and my, my loved ones. I want the world to, to see that as well. So that was inspired with me within me early on and my my parents are from Nigeria and they have their own respective professions but they were also you know they're they're ministers they were serving in their church um so oh. early on so I got to see that kind of acts of service and I, I started volunteering at um, homeless shelters in high school and and soup kitchens and just kind of that was like my fun and I oh wow I was organizing some other young folks in my youth group and and things like that to go with me and so there are those you know those little seeds early on for sure and we see you know what we're doing up now which is right which is the honor of my life and all I've ever wanted was to see hundreds of thousands if not millions of people um, come into a sense of their power, their agency, and that we can build a type of world, you know, that really works for all of us. And we can have a multiracial democracy that works and, and celebrates us and affirms the diversity that already is. And, you know, that's all I've ever wanted. So it's great to know that there are way more people, <laughs> thousands if not millions of people now who are equally as invested and committed and finding their ways to join the movement for human rights and, and dignity for us. Wow. Well said. I'm um, very well said. Day to day then, what do you spend most, like what do you do day to day to spend your time uh, spreading the message with just Black Lives Matter? You said you, you sit in a lot of boards, you're involved maybe with strategy 
um, with other people. How else? Like, give me a give me a day in the life of you. <laughs> day in the life. Day in the life. It looks it looks very different every single day. Oh my gosh! So yeah, uh, sure. It, it really does. But I'll I'll give you a snippet. Um, I'm just thinking, been thinking about day last week where I I try to actually have a, a, a well-rounded day these days. At the, at the beginning and even towards like the, the beginning of the uprisings, I'll say I was completely off balance in terms of, you know, lots of press, lots of meetings, lots of consulting with different groups. And that can easily be an 18-hour day. Oh, um, and yeah. there are times where that still sneaks into my day-to-day now, but I'm trying to have a bit more balanced pace where... Wow. You know, for example, you know, I might go on a walk in the morning or do some yoga in the morning after doing a little bit of meditation. Um, and then it's, you know, start the day. <laughs> and that might be, you know, press and recording a podcast, for example. Yeah. But what time if, do you wake up in the morning? I'm an early riser. So I'm up by 6 a.m., if not 5. But no. Oh, okay. Yeah, 5 to 6 a.m. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and I, I saw that you pray. I heard that you pray though. Also, I, re- I read an article yes. in the Guardian that you yes. pray like multiple times a day. Is that yeah. what I saw? Um, yeah. I mean, I'll take a beat multiple times a day, but it might not be a full on, you know, I'm made a dedicated space. <laughs> but I'm one of those people who will say, I need three minutes, pause, take that moment, take a deep breath pray, think about the mantra that I might have created for myself in the morning, bring that into my awareness for my next set of meetings. Um, so for example, I had a meeting before ours and that was a strategy session and then an invitation to do a speaking engagement. Um, and that's advising actually on the business side. So it's a, it's a beauty brand that I was talking with that wants to think about how they bring this into their team more, but also with their, their own messaging and the work that they're doing in the community. So my days also look like that, which is supporting um, and advising both on the you know business side of things, because there are a lot of amazing supporters, amazing people who recognize that, hey, the, what we're calling for, the type of transformation our society needs isn't solely um, going to take place at the governmental level, but there are um, businesses and, and mm-hmm. leaders in the corporate space and, and, and beyond that also have um, a role to play and that they can actually lead where others might not be able to. So this is a company that's thinking about their leadership and in that way. So conference calls, more sessions, Zoom meetings. <laughs> <laughs> Zoom. Zoom meetings. Yes. And then um, these days I, I set myself up with a new therapist. So I might have a therapy session, you know, once a week. And so I'm able to do that. But my my therapy might also be a long conversation with a friend. And that's also equally healing. So I'm I'm doing my best to have a bit more balance than I was. But it's a lot of Zoom like everybody. It's a lot of conference calls like everybody. The content right. be different than a, maybe a typical like <laughs> or something like that. Um, but it's similar kinds of engagement given the times that we're in. Right. Wow. So you do a lot of consulting just from brands who want to just be even more uh, socially conscious of what they're doing more or less. Yes, exactly. And it's great because we are seeing that they a lot more understand, you know, from the NBA, which is doing a phenomenal job and, and, and really out there and being very, um, 
clear with their stance and inviting others to um, to brands like uh, Ben and Jerry's and you know others that are just really take like a Ben and Jerry's really yeah which are you should check out some of their stuff online oh yeah oh yeah <laughs> really I'm going to totally check it out is that go to their Instagram and you'll see what they've been doing from their statements to check their their corporate responsibility and their donations and so on yes their messaging they've they really use their platform to educate the public in a way that I've never seen before. So definitely. Wow. Mm-hmm. Are you helping them on that one or? Um, I'm some of the people that I know are helping them with that. Oh, okay. We've, we've had our conversations for sure. And they're, oh, they're amazing. Over, yeah, I'm going to check it out. I mean, that's been happening for years, but they've really stepped it up in the last few months really made a bolder and more clear um, assertion of who they are and what their values are as a company. And they're not, you know, they're not shying away from it. Wow. I'm going to go check it out. So who are some of the companies that you do work with to help them kind of be more, more conscious of what's happening? Well, I don't know that I can share all the brands and companies. Oh, okay. I know I, I'm itching to, but I'm like, hmm. <laughs> you name one. How about one company? You name one. Well, you know, I've I've shared with you know and had these various conversations with the NBA. So oh, you have okay. That's that's a good one. So that's a good one. Good for you. Yeah, I think it's. I mean, it's important and it's it's necessary. And these are the times that we're living in, and it's great to see that they also want to take this kind of stand. And so they've they've been out there leading, and you know whatever I can share, and the you know if I can support, I'm always. Um, I'm open to that. I'm open to that, especially with folks who have demonstrated that they are already thinking about it. And so right. it's easier. It's easy to partner in that way, right? When folks are open and ready and willing to commit their resources to walk the talk, it's a dream. Absolutely. What then? What can I ask you? What is this? What is uh, Diaspora Rising that you're working on? Is that a new project? Yes. So that is, okay. Yeah, so that is my new project. So it is a new digital platform that we have begun to un, unfold uh, virtually. And this project, in essence, is bridging some of the communities in the diaspora. So African diaspora. When we say diaspora, that's what I mean. Um, yeah. Tell us what it is, because I think that again, like yeah, I don't want I don't, people who. People may not know this is not a master class, so like break it down. What is it? Yeah. So when I, when I, yeah. So when I say <laughs> the diaspora, what I what I'm alluding to is um, African Americans who might have been in the U.S. for many many generations. I'm talking about African immigrants or refugees who might be more recent to the U.S. or different parts of if it's Europe or Brazil or, or different parts of the world. So people who aren't um, in Africa, Black people who aren't in Africa. Got it. Okay. Meaning that. But what this platform is really about is about uplifting the different types of stories, the different types of um, cultural expression that is happening within these types of communities that are across the diaspora. So they might be some folks in, you know, Amsterdam or in, in uh, Sao Paulo. And we're basically using this platform to share about the diversity that exists within the black community. Cause it's, we're not a monolith. <laughs> we're not, right. we're not all speaking one language, right? So there are 
black folks who speak Spanish and <laughs> Portuguese and, and so on. So this is a space to really just celebrate the the breadth of who we are and to also begin to make those connections with our peers um, that might live on the continent of Africa. So if it's Ghana, which celebrated the year of return last year, which was a you know very powerful um, rallying cry where and I don't know if you might have seen this, but back uh, in August of last year, there was this beginning of the year of return in which the president of Ghana said, hey, we want African-Americans and you know Black people in diaspora to come back to the continent, to visit, to get to know, um, to, to connect with the culture and your roots and to know that you also have a place that's here, right? That there is also this history that isn't just the history of slavery in the US or slavery you know, across the Americas, but you have this other history and we're inviting you to come back. And that was an important kind of kickoff last year, last August, because that marked 400 years since the first ship landed um, oh. in the US, right? From the coasts of Ghana, to uh, Virginia. So that was an important, yeah, right. was the form. Yeah. So in essence, I, what this platform is doing in Diaspora Rising is inviting more stories about our history, our culture, um, and the great things that those of us who are here are doing. So that's... Oh, yeah. so you're spending a lot of time on that. So I'm spending wow. time on that as well. Um, and that's in the beginning stages, but that's also taking... Um, quite a bit of energy and love. Wow. And love. The great thing is that, you know, we have amazing teams and I have an amazing team um, and people who are not only looking for a paycheck, but they're, you know, volunteering and supporting and they get it. And so they're contributing in various ways to. They're probably very passionate about this. Yeah. So it's, it's incredible. And oh, Wow. You're a busy girl. <laughs> yeah, so we got a lot going on. <laughs> yeah, you got a lot going on. Wow, well, I, I, I don't want to keep you any longer. It's been over an hour, I think, that I've been like, you know, <laughs> ringing you with questions. Okay. It was a pleasure having you on the podcast. Thank you so much. Where do people um, get more information about you, about everything that you're involved with, Black Lives Matter, Diaspora? Just yeah. share everything and yeah, so then, then you can go. <laughs> So people can keep up with me by visiting my website, actually, opaltometi.org. You can go to my website and from there you'll see plenty of links uh, if it's to my social or to organizations that I work with. You'll see all of that right there. And then, of course, you know, social media, opalaya, so O-P-A-L-A-Y-O on Instagram and on Twitter. And then I, of course, have my Facebook fan page and you can just type in my name and you'll see that there. And from that point, you'll see all, you know, the related platforms that I uh, work with. Oh, wow. Well, you've been very, thank you so much for taking the time. It was super interesting. I've learned a lot. Um, hopefully everyone else has too, I'm sure. And I guess good luck with all these different projects. And I'll be, I'll be following it. I'll be, I'll be trying to be much more active myself because now with information, then you have to do action, right? So that's absolutely right. Thank you so much for having me. And don't hesitate to reach out if anything. I'm sure I'll be in touch um, over the next few months, if not years, around some of the entrepreneurial things that are going on. 
Habits and hustle, time to get it rolling. Stay up on the grind, don't stop, keep it going. Habits and hustle, from nothing into something. All out, hosted by Jennifer Cohen. Visionaries, tune in, you can get to know them. Be inspired, this is your moment. Excuses, we ain't having that. The Habits and Hustle Podcast, powered by Habit Nest. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world, and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion, and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's gonna push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously which is why I'm known as the podcast princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you want to learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join podcast royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap, like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.